0: Ray Good evening, everyone. This is Ham Talk Live, episode number five Bob Olfen, K4UEE. Recorded live on Thursday, March 17th, 2016. I'm your host, Neil Rapp, WB9VPG. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Ham Talk Live. Tonight on the show, Bob Alfin, K4UEE, will join us. Bob will be talking about how he's able to organize all these big top 10 most wanted de expeditions and the videos that he has that uh, documents those trips and we'll be taking your calls live in just a few minutes. Last week on the big show Tom Vinson NY0V was here to talk about his trip to Myanmar to work with Boy Scouts and Girl Guides and I hope you will support Tom uh, in those efforts to bring ham radio back to Myanmar. Uh, If you missed that show or any future show you can listen to the replay on hamtalklive.com Or it's also on Spreaker, TuneIn, iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. And this week we've added Stitcher, and we've added everything for Google Play, but the Google Play podcast um, option is not released yet. So it's ready to go. As soon as they're ready to go, we'll be on it. And uh, we're also pending on uh, iHeart Podcast, so uh, hopefully we'll be on there in the the next week or so tonight we want to take your calls as always so in just a few minutes be ready to call in you can call us on skype and the username is ham talk live or you can call us by telephone that phone number again is 812 net ham 1 that's 812-638-4261 My guest this evening is Bob Alford, K4UEE, and Bob's home QTH is the metro Atlanta, Georgia area. Bob has either participated, led, or co-led de-expeditions to 11 of the top 10 most wanted DXCC entities. Bob has 11 de-expedition of the year awards and has participated in 38 de-expeditions total. Since retiring, Bob's made de-expeditions his full-time job and he's a member of the CQDX Hall of Fame, as well as many, many other recognitions. So, Bob, welcome to Ham Talk Live.
1: Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Uh, Bob, take us uh, back uh, briefly and, and talk about um, how you got started in ham radio and what your uh, background is to just kind of bring us up to um, the expeditions.
1: Okie doke. Well, it uh, it started it started in the Boy Scouts. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I was probably nine years old, and the Scoutmaster happened to be a ham, and you know we had the radio merit badge, radio merit badge back in those days. So we built a crystal set, and uh, you know wrapped uh, wrapped the wire around that piece of cardboard that was in uh, toilet paper tissue, yep, yep. and made a coil and. And I had some old World War II headphones. We had a little uh, uh, little detector there, a germanium diode, and we started listening on that with an antenna hung out the window. And I I could hear music. Um, I could hear people talking. I, I it was it was coming through the air. And I don't know. I just it just kind of hit me at that age. It was it was magic. I just couldn't believe that you could hear intelligence coming through the air and uh, frankly uh, here we are some 57 years later i guess and um uh, and it's still magic
0: <laughs> yeah it is and you don't <laughs> let the magic smoke out
1: no that's you let right. the magic
0: smoke out everything stops working
1: so that that was kind of the beginning now that was eight or nine years old and and you know it took me I guess I I took my novice test uh, when I was 14. So I kind of played around with it for three to five years as a SWL, and finally found an Elmer uh, who said, "Just uh, take my arm, young man, and I'll show you what to do, and I'll give you the test." And I remember waiting uh, after taking the test. Uh, I I don't think I I think you knew whether you passed or not, but you didn't know when the license was going to come. So I would run to the mailbox every day for about. Five or six weeks, and uh one of my favorite stories and i hope i hope you your 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 listeners haven't heard it before it's kind of cute i got i got i was ready to go i got the license in the mail and i got k n four u e e and i thought well okay that's 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 all right could have been worse could have been z x v or something yep yeah but <laughs> Uh, so I went and called CQ. I had an eighty-meter transmitter and about twenty watts out. Called CQ for about an hour on eighty meters, thirty-five fourteen, and then somebody answered me. And I was so excited that I got up and I ran around the house yelling, "Somebody's calling me! Somebody's calling me! What do I do?" <laughs> and and my mom says, "Well, why don't you go answer him?" Oh, okay. <laughs> so, and it turned out to be a guy in—I you know, was in Birmingham at that point. My dad was in the military, and we were stationed. This guy that uh, answered me was in Gadsden, which is about 60 miles away. But you know, I just thought that was big DX. And of course, we were—we were talking to each other at about five and a half words a minute. So I'm sure the conversation took forever. But um, I, I think you know the like i said earlier it's it's magic even today and then later on i got my general license and i uh, f- 3 or 4 months later and i continued to work on 80 meters and, and i worked europe on 80 and i worked i worked new zealand and australia on 80 and i worked all over south america on 80 meters and i just i said this is really something and uh, of course it's a lot easier on the higher bands but uh I got interested in the low bands and I've always been a low band enthusiast because I think that's where the big thrill is when you make a QSO with a guy that's a a long way away and uh, you know, he's in the noise and and weak, weak, weak. Uh, That's just kind of, that's just kind of my thing. And of course I'm a CW guy and most of my QSOs are on CW. So that's kind of how I got started. Uh, Shortly after that, my dad was transferred overseas and, so I went and finished high school in Okinawa and back then Okinawa was a was a, a separate DXCC entity it was KR6 and I was KR6LY KR6 lonesome yankee and uh that's that's the first time I've been on the other end of pileups and uh, frankly uh you know I loved it it was uh, it was addictive and I think that's probably when the uh when the bug the expedition bug bit and of course it when it bit it 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 bit and is still biting today
0: yeah it, it it bit well so so how did you you go from from that to something so um treacherous i guess is the word i'm looking for as going to peter Wan island
1: well um that's that's a great question neil um Peter one was uh, about ten years ago, uh, and I had done a number of uh, a number of expeditions. I'd been invited on them, or I had an opportunity to lead or co-lead a number. But um, I, I was always interested in activating really the rare ones, the ones that only come on the, year, the air every fifteen or twenty years, because you know they're really out of the way. They're hard to get to. It costs a lot of money. There's nobody that lives there. And so I I became fixated on Peter 1, which is about 300 miles off the western coast of of Antarctica, for those that are not quite sure where that is. Uh, We had a couple of um, missteps uh, with transportation and that kind of thing, and it took about three years to pull it off. And virtually uh, uh, about all I did during that three years, I had retired at that point, and all I did was... You know, work on making that come, come to, come to happen, and finally, in uh, this time, ten years ago, February of uh, two thousand six, we got it done and made about eighty thousand QSOs. Used helicopters to get on and off the island. Uh, we did have some bad weather, and we were you know socked in a number of times. And uh, in fact, our departure was delayed because of bad weather. It was uh, my second time down in that part of the world. And, you know, I really love it down there, but uh, it, it is, as you said, it's it's very treacherous. Um, since then, there have been a number of other expeditions. As you mentioned, I think in your introduction that I, I have uh, activated or uh, been on a team that's activated 11 of the top tenors. Some people have a little trouble with that math. How can you activate 11 yeah. top tenors? Uh, if I told you I was going to activate Twelve and thirteen top teners, and you know what I've got in my future. But anyway, <laughs> they they don't they don't stay in the top ten, of course. If you do a good job when you go there, so new ones come on. But that's 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 uh, that's kind of what I do. I've got a spirit of adventure, and I I guess has a lot of it has to do with the fact that I traveled a lot when my dad was in the service, and um, you know I don't don't have any trouble getting on an airplane or getting on a boat or getting on a train or a bus and going someplace new, I, I think it's a great thrill.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, I I have some connection and we were talking before the show with the Peter One thing, so we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit, but that's why I brought that particular one up, but it just seemed so so treacherous. Um, so how do you plan for this? Now in the video I, I you know, I, I saw, you know, some footage of You guys sitting in a, I think it was a holiday inn or something in the conference room and, and talking about those kinds of things. How do you go about organizing one of these trips?
1: Well, that also is a very good question. And, and that's one of the reasons that, that these things take so long to pull together. First of all, to, to be in the top 10 or to be rare, you know, um, there's some reason for that. Uh, as I said earlier, they're way out of the way, hard to get to, expensive. The other thing is that there's usually some kind of a impediment, uh, either a government uh, agency that has um, has uh, say over the island and controls access to the island, or um, or you know a government that doesn't allow amateur radio. Uh, North Korea is a good example. But so one of the things that has to happen is you've got to get a per a permit, and that that can take. In the, in the case of the last one, we activated uh, Navassa a year ago. It took thirteen years to get the permit from U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So a lot of the time is spent doing that. Um, the other thing, of course, have to do with the equipment and the, and the personnel and. You know, I've got a, a, a list of people that I've been with before and and those people have a list of, you know, I'm on a number of lists. And so if something comes up, I usually get a call and they know they're going to get a call. So these are people that I've been with before and I know I can trust them. And I know if we have a serious situation of some kind that they're not going to panic. And I know that they've got the money to pay their share and I know they've got the time, uh, you know, to take Six or seven weeks off because these trips, particularly the Antarctic, you know, it takes two weeks to get there and you're two weeks on the island and two weeks back. I mean, that's six weeks out of your life away from away from work or home or whatever. So once you can build a team, then it's a matter of the I, I just I just delegate and kind of, you know, take the, the, uh, the position of the, the supervisor, I guess. And I I ask people to do different jobs that have to be done. And uh, then they report back and, and we tweak it and change it if necessary. And uh, everybody has a role to play. But um, th- th- I, th- probably the most valuable thing I could tell you right now, Neil, is that what you have to do is you have to envision every possible situation that you can find yourself in. Um, for example, the the easy things are, we want to have how many stations that will require how many radios, how many amps, how many generators, how many antennas, and how many operators. That's kind of easy. We've got to feed the operators. We've got to house the operators. So now how are we going to do that? How much food does it take? Who's going to handle that? Who's going to uh, uh, find the shelters? Who's going to erect the shelters? And then and then that that's all kind of straightforward, and we've done it enough that we've got – got it pretty well down pat. But when it comes to envisioning circumstances that are unlikely, but could be disastrous, uh, that's a whole different deal, because you've got to really think outside the box. You've got to say, well, what if this happens? What do we do? How are we prepared for that? How do we react to it? How do we recover from it? How do we get off the island? And that's also something you just kind of learn. Um, And if you surround yourself with good people, like I, I try to do, you know, we've got a lot of, I got a good brain power. So we're, we're very fortunate to be able to say that we've never had any serious accidents or, um, uh, you know, anything that has not gone pretty much as we planned it. And, uh, that's uh you know, I, I need to knock on wood, and I'll do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope that's helpful. And, yeah, and we yeah. do try to try to capture that as much as we can in, in the videos.
0: Yeah. Now, speaking of the videos, um, one of the things that that um, you know I don't think you you knew about until today uh, was that there there was a little connection uh, with the video and some of the things that I do. I teach high school and. I sponsor a high school amateur radio club and and one day I decided that I was going to show the video from the Peter One DX expedition. And so we we watched it and and there was a little drama there at the end because storm moved in and we're like okay now how are we going to get everybody off the island and we've got a couple people still over there and some stuff still over there and how are we going to do that and and so that actually inspired one of my students to uh, turn his family vacation that summer to Cyprus into a de-expedition. And so he took a radio and a battery and an antenna and a buddy pole and and set up at different places around Cyprus. And he ended up writing an article for QST that one of his pictures ended up being the cover Uh, photo on QST and he got the uh, cover plaque award and one thing leads to another and he's speaking at Dayton about it he's speaking at other clubs about it and Dr. Scott Wright and I nominate him for the Young Ham of the Year Award he gets the Young Ham of the Year Award he gets the Hiram Percy Maxim Award he gets the Goldfarb Scholarship and just sweeps everything and it all comes back to that one video Showing that one video of that de expedition sparked that whole chain of events wow i just I just heard this story
1: uh you know before we went on the air, and I was really touched by it um, i I always think that that these videos are gonna play a role somehow in getting somebody interested in the hobby. Uh, I hope that they you know that they they have that that role. And now you've given me evidence of that. I, I think it's uh, it's a great story. And I, when I see you in Dayton, Neil, um, this this year, if that young man is there, I'd love to meet him.
0: Well, I know his sister's going to be there and his mother. I'm not sure if he will. He's uh, actually at Cornell right now, um, and his final exams are usually at that point. But if there's a way to make that work, I will, I will certainly make that happen. Yeah. I'd like that um, very much.
1: That's yeah. a great story. Makes yeah. me feel, feel good.
0: Yeah. So those videos do play a, uh, a wonderful role. And if you haven't seen any of those videos, they, they make a great uh, club meeting. Um, you know, you can pop it in and, and let it go. And, and they're, they're quite interesting. And, and so talk about uh, just briefly how people can get a hold of those videos and, and what the money goes toward and, and um, which ones are, are out there.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess this is the commercial yes, part. Yes. This is the commercial part. <laughs> um, on my website, k 4 com, uh, there is a, a section of, um uh, that you can click on that shows you the DVDs. We've done 10 of them over the years. And, um, uh, uh, they're, they're all good. They're all interesting and, you know, different expeditions all over the world. In fact, I had an opportunity to look at some that we did almost 10 years ago recently. And I, you know, I was amazed at, at how, at how <laughs> what a good job we did. But um, uh, the the really big ones, uh, Peter One and uh, Amsterdam Island and desacheo and Malpelo and last year in uh, they are all well chronicled in those, in those DVDs. And they, they run anywhere from about 35 or 40 minutes to as much as an hour. So you're getting your money's worth. And I, I do most of the filming. Um, I'm not much of an editor. In fact, I'm not an editor at all. So I, I, uh, hire professional editors to do the work and, and I'm, I'm just real pleased with the outcome. We, we sell them for 25 bucks a piece. And, uh, and includes shipping worldwide and you know our our expenses are when you figure in the cost of the uh, the editor and the and duplicating and postage and all of that kind of stuff we probably make about four or five bucks on each one uh and then we just uh, kind of divide that up and I, I take my portion and i put it in the de-expedition pot for the next uh, for the next adventure so, if uh, if you have an interest in that, uh, as Neil said, they're they're great for club meetings. They're they're great for getting young people in, interested in the hobby, as we just heard a good example of that. So it's k4uee dot com, uh, and then click on the DVD section. And uh, any uh, any orders that you place would be greatly appreciated, and we'll get the DVDs out to you right away.
0: And those are also available at a few. Assorted places. I know I picked mine up at the Huntsville Hamfest, uh, yeah. and at Dayton, I believe.
1: Yeah, uh, DX Engineering um, handles them. AWRL handles them. Um, Gigaparts handles them. MFJ's handles them. Um, that's not their main business, but they've got them available. So that's another that's another way you could get a hold of them. And I, I guess I should mention also that. If you uh, if you order uh, three at a time uh, I discount the price from 75 down to 60 so you can get them three of them for an average of 20 bucks a piece and if you order the whole set um, of 10 and a number of people have done that um, it's 175 dollars and so you're your're per your per DVD price is down to about seventeen fifty, so that's you know that's all on the website, and that's something to think about. Thanks Excellent. for the opportunity to talk about this. It's it's fun. It's great stuff. Oh, absolutely.
0: Well, speaking of ads, it's time for us to take a break and uh, get an ad in here. And I know we've got at least one caller who's been trying to get through, and and it, it, it's Doctor Scott Wright. Uh, he sent me a tweet while ago, so I know he's going to going to ask you some questions oh, and, I, I and we'll take some wanna, other uh i don't callers talk here. To scott. oh yeah uh-oh scott <laughs> uh, oh you didn't hear that <laughs> no, uh but ask, it he'll yeah, ask hard questions <laughs> yeah yeah he'll ask the tough ones so anyway we'll we'll take your calls here uh when we come back from the break but right now uh let's hear a word from one of our sponsors tower electronics right here on ham talk live this episode of Ham Talk Live is brought to you by Tower Electronics. Tower Electronics has been the Ham's dime store since 1978, bringing connectors, antennas, cables, and other parts to the world. Scott and Jill travel the country bringing their store to you at HamFest, but you can also order online at pl-259.com or by calling 920-435-2973. Stock up on those supplies like PL-259 and end connectors, audio cables, mobile antennas, and hamsticks. Their silver-plated end connectors are even in use on the International Space Station. Tower Electronics is a dealer for MFJ, Comet, Daiwa, OPEC, Workman, and HamPro technologies. Tower Electronics, online at pl-259.com, proud to sponsor this episode of HamTalk Live. Yeah, you're talking ham radio, baby. You're listening to Ham Talk Live with Neil Rapp. Welcome back to Ham Talk Live. Thanks to the support of Tower Electronics to help bring Ham Talk Live to you each week. Some of their upcoming shows are the Toledo, Ohio Ham Fest on March 20th and also Mobile, Alabama on April 9th. Be sure to listen to the show every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time right here on HamTalkLive.com. Also, check out our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. Just search for Ham Talk Live. Bob Olfin, K4UEE, is our guest this evening, and we're going to start taking some calls now, so feel free to give us a call. The best way to do that is with Skype. Give us an audio call on Skype at Ham Talk Live, or if Skype isn't your thing, you can call us at on telephone uh, at 812-NET-HAM-1. That's 812 812- six, three, eight, four, two, six, one. So Bob, uh, I, I, I went ahead and took the call during the, the break here. We are joined by K zero MD, Dr. Scott Wright. And, and so, um, I, I know you said you didn't want to talk to him, but, but hopefully that was just sarcasm.
1: <laughs>
0: Scott, how are you doing tonight?
2: I'm great. Thank you. And Bob, good evening. I look forward to Seeing you in the near future and at Dayton and uh, Neil, I just first wanted to say to Bob on behalf of so many of us who uh, are DXers. Thank you for all the work and time over the last fifteen or twenty years that you 've put in activating the rarest of the rare i 've had a glimpse into some of your d expeditions uh, not having not having been able to go, but having been invited, and I know the leadership and time and the hundred hours a week that you and other co-leaders put in. So I just want to publicly say thank you for all your hard work and look forward to you leading another one in the near future. I wondered, Bob, if you could share with the listeners just a little bit about Mary, your wonderful wife, who is so generous to give us so much of your time in the hobby. And secondly, if you had any thoughts about how we can get more young people involved in ham radio. Today's ARRL newsletter has a picture of a teenager who just did DXCC and worked all states, uh, I think he's 14 or 15, and the new ARRL CEO had uh, took a picture with him at League, giving him the certificates, and we need more people like that and like uh, Neil's students. Neil's doing it right in Bloomington, but most of us can't seem to uh, get as many young people involved in DXing and contesting, so I'm going to, those are the only questions I have, uh, Bob, and I, I'm wondering if you have some, some answers. Uh,
1: uh, no, I don't, Scott. I'm just kidding. (laughs) There's nothing I'd like more than to talk about my wife, Mary, because she's an integral part of all of this. Um, We've been married 49 years now, and it's looking pretty good for 50, so happy about that. But, you know, the the bottom line is I couldn't do what I do uh, without her blessing. I think in the old days, Scott, we used to refer to that as a kitchen pass. You know, I've got to get a kitchen pass, but most people don't get them for six and seven (laughs) weeks at a time. So we often joke about the fact that, uh, you know, maybe she wants to get rid of me. So uh, when I come back, you know, there's a great reunion, and she says, how's it going, so on and so forth, where, you know, everything's fine for a couple weeks. Then uh, suddenly one night she'll say, so when are you going again? Sort of like, Gosh, you've been home a long time—two weeks. (laughs) I'm just kidding, of course. Uh, She's a great gal, and you know that's uh, again—I couldn't. None of us could do what we do without without that kind of support. Um, As far as getting some of the young people uh, involved in this hobby, I—I've got a couple of thoughts there. Again, Neil was telling me earlier about what he's doing in the, in the high school there and sponsoring the, the ham club, and apparently he's been very successful. But there's a big, wide world of, full of young kids that are bright and, and interested in, in really cool things. And uh, I, I've always thought that maybe one of the ways we might approach this is to point out to them that amateur radio um, is really the first wireless uh, you know, there's all this talk about wireless technology. Well, we've been doing it for 100 years. And um, are you all hearing me okay?
0: Yeah, I, I think am. there's just a little echo coming back through oh, okay. Scott's okay. phone there.
1: So, I mean, that's that's maybe that's one way to break the ice, but um, I, I think the, the aspects of the hobby that, that are probably would be of most interest to today's generation would be uh, contesting and DXing. Um, I, I m- my understanding is that, uh, there's an awful lot of gaming that's going on and it's, it's a very, very popular. Well, uh, there's no better gaming than, than what we do on, you know, on, on weekend contests on the radio. Um, and I, that's a good way to get them interested, I think. And, and DXing, of course, um, if, if I think the idea is to c- combine, the the amateur radio aspect of uh, of DXing with the adventure of DXing because these kids are no different than we were when we were when we were young they they've got a spirit of adventure and and they they want to see the world and they want to meet new people and, and climb mountains and swim oceans and that kind of stuff um, and you know that's you you can do that. You can do that th- through the radio, sitting in your den or in your bedroom. But you can also do that by getting on an airplane or getting on a boat uh, with some other guys and go someplace really interesting and, and, and do a de-expedition. And I just I just think that that would be something that, that you know, would attract these, these young folks to the hobby. What do, you, what do you think, Scott?
2: I have to agree, Bob. I think uh, we have to engage the culture that they have uh, of travel adventure, and I think many of them do like gaming, and uh, I also think we need to uh, figure out a way that adults uh, like the three of us who have knowledge and extra equipment can help uh, youngsters uh, and teenagers out who don't have much of a budget or parents who, uh, who see a need for investment in a hobby and to help them get started and just spend some time mentoring them as well. Um, I, I think that's important, but I'll tell you if we could have a school club station like what Neil Rapp has in Bloomington and every town in America, ham radio with the doublest membership in 10 years. Uh, uh, Neil, my, my congratulations to all you do at uh, Bloomington South. Uh, Bob I don't know if you're aware of this, but Neil brought uh, three students to contest university last May and they took up a challenge and uh, they got they worked DXCC by the time uh, in, in one contest weekend CQ worldwide sideband i uh, wow. very impressed with club station and what he did with with a two-element uh, stepper, Yagi, and uh, that's about it, I think, right,
0: Neil? Yeah, yeah, that's about it. Well, wow. Thank you, Scott. Uh, I appreciate thank your, your kind words. Everyone have a good evening. Thank you. All right, Bye-bye. thank you, Scott. And I will throw out, too, uh, there is a group, and I don't have it in front of me, uh, but there is a group that organizes a youth de-expedition trip where they take a parent along and a child along and and do go, um, I know they did Costa Rica here not long ago, Um, then that's been available most years. I think last year they weren't able to to pull it off, but um, they have one, and the RSGB has one also. They have a youth de-expedition where they go out to a a remote area and um, and then set up, and in fact, one of my students uh, was planning on going to that and wasn't able to get it worked out, but um, there are some some trips set up just for youth to go on these expeditions. Uh,
1: yeah, Neil, I know a little bit about that that uh, that program here in the states. It's run by a, a fellow that was on the Peter One expedition, actually, uh, Don Debon N Six JRL, uh, who lives in Dayton, as a matter of fact. And I know that this year they're going to the island of Saba down in the Caribbean. And uh, I was just down there about three weeks ago for a, an international uh, contest, and and uh, the owner of the station down there is really really excited about having, of having these young hams come in and you know with their parents, and it's going to be a great experience. This is a beautiful island, and uh, you know it doesn't doesn't have the big glitzy hotels and, and casinos. In fact, it doesn't even have a beach. But but if you like to scuba dive or, or snorkel or or climb mountains, um, or do ham radio, it's a, it's a really interesting place. And I know the kids that are going to participate in that will have a ball.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So there are, there are some limited trips out there, you know, for youth. So uh, that is one option. Well, uh, it's time to take our final break, but we'll be back with more with Bob Olfin right after this message from the ham station here on Ham Talk Live. This episode of Ham Talk Live is brought to you by the Ham Station. For 35 years, the Ham Station has brought new and used radios, antennas, accessories, and equipment to the amateur radio community. Give Jeff or Dan a call at 1-800-729-4373 or order online at hamstation.com. HamStation carries all the major brands like Icom, Yaesu, and Kenwood. Shop from a wide selection of radio scanners, MFJ accessories, Heil Sound products, Mirage and Ameritron amplifiers, Kushcraft antennas, and more. Easy online shopping and fast shipping are waiting for you at hamstation.com or call 1-800-729-4373. The HamStation, proud to sponsor this episode of Ham Talk Live.
2: You're listening to Ham Talk Live with Neil Rapp,
0: and welcome back to Ham Talk Live. If would like to thank the ham station for sponsoring the show, give Dan or Jeff a call at 800-729-7343 or visit hamstation.com for your next rig. Bob Olfen K4UEE is our guest this evening and we do have some time for some more calls. So give us a call on Skype at ham talk live or by telephone at 812 net ham one. Okay. Uh, Bob, we're back with you now. And, um, Tell us what a typical day would be for an operator on one of those de-expeditions. What would a typical day look like?
1: Uh, that, that's a good question as well. Um, obviously, at the very beginning, when we first get to our, our location, um, we basically have to build what I like to call the radio city. Uh, because these these places, we're, we're usually not in a hotel and we usually did not fly in. We, at least on commercial airlines, we had helicopters or we had icebreakers or somehow or other we got there. So w- there's no hotel. We've got to set up our own shelters. We've got to set up uh, our, our kitchen. We've got to get everything organized before we ever put up the first antenna. So we've got to build that city that's going to support Anywhere from fifteen to twenty men uh, for the next couple of weeks. Then, once that infrastructure is built, then you begin putting the stations together and you begin putting up the antennas, and um, you begin going on the air. the The bulk of the time, let's say it's a two weeks a two week expedition, the bulk of the time, maybe twelve of those days, is um, is pretty routine. Frankly, uh, you just basically operate, uh, you sleep, you fix things that break, and you eat. Uh, And you just do that over and over and over again uh, for 12 days. Typically, you will operate uh, on 3 or 4 hour shifts and you will usually have 3 or 4 shifts in each 24 hour period. Um, So, for example, on Navassa, the, the last expedition this time last year, uh, we used three-hour shifts, and most of us were running four shifts a day. So we were on the air uh, 12 hours a day for 11 days. And uh, the rest of the time, as you might imagine, we're, we're in our bunks uh, or having something to eat or uh, there was time to do some exploring, and it's a very interesting island uh but it's it's you you settle into a routine i just call i call it de expedition mode and then when you get near the end and you shut things down and everything comes down, the good news is it it comes down about three times faster than it went up. you pack it on uh you pack it on the helicopter or you or you you get it to the boat or whatever and uh, and you're on your way again and and that's when the celebration begins because Usually we've been fortunate enough to make an awful lot of QSOs. I don't think we've let anybody down in terms of the number of contacts that we make. And um, so we're we're proud of that. We're happy that we were able to do it. And, you know, it's um, another adventure that we've successfully completed. And uh, there's usually talk about uh, <laughs> where do we go next? Talk about the next one.
0: So, if you had to choose between warm or cold, you've done both extremes. Which one would you pick? Oh, my. Um, It's really not quite
1: that simple, Neil. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) There are bugs.
1: (laughs) If you're cold, uh, the challenge is to stay warm, and if you're warm, the challenge is to cool off. So there's nothing that's particularly comfortable about about either of those alternatives. But I can say that um, the Antarctic region, I've been down there three times, Hurt Island uh, uh, in 1997, and then Peter, well, actually uh, South Sandwich and South Georgia in 2002, and then Peter 1 in 2006, it is like, in that area of the world, it's like leaving planet Earth and going to Mars. It is so different. The animals, the weather, the wind, the rain, the snow, the sleet, the volcanoes, the glaciers. Um, it, it's, it's, it's like another world. And that it's, it's addictive. And, you know, I want to go back. On the other hand, uh, I've never been so cold in my life uh, as I was, uh, you know, down there, particularly in Peter One. There's a quick story if we've got time. Uh, I think yep, the coldest. Two minutes. Okay, the coldest I've ever been was on Peter One. Typically, uh, temperatures were in the teens, uh, but the wind was the problem, blowing 30, 40, 50, 60 miles an hour. But we wore four or five layers, so you weren't really cold. But when you when it was time to undress and take off all those layers and get into your sleeping bag there was a period of about 30 or 40 seconds there where you didn't have any clothing on or you had one layer on and of course in the tent if it's if it's 18 outside it's 17 uh, or, or 19 in the tent so uh, then you spend the next uh, 30 minutes trying to warm up so that that is the coldest point it's very awkward when you're changing from fully clothed to, uh, to hardly clothed and trying to s- climb into that sleeping bag.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's, uh, that's quite an adventure. And, uh, I was, uh, glad to follow along with that, with, you know, the video. And then, uh, one of my other, uh, former students, his uncle was, was on that trip. And so, uh, had a little connection there and I heard a lot about it. And, um, it just doesn't get much colder than that.
1: No, no. No, I, I think it's a, the temperature wasn't that bad, but the wind
0: chill was was deadly. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, we thank you for doing that and all these other de-expeditions, and we look forward to the next one.
1: Well, I I'm, I think that there are probably two that I'm aware of in, in the next couple of years, and they also will be the top tenors. Of course, I can't let the cat out of the bag right now, but uh, um, you know they're they're most likely going to happen, and and at some point I got to hang up my spurs, but not yet.
0: Well, we uh, we thank you for doing that, and we'll anxiously wait to uh, to hear where those are. So that's a wrap for this week's edition of Ham Talk Live. I'd like to thank my guest, Bob Alford, K4UEE, and all the callers and listeners out there in cyberspace, and I invite you back next Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, when my guest will be Gary West, K8DEV. He's from the Westchester Amateur Radio Association and the Voice of America Museum near Westchester, Ohio. Gary and some of the officers will be here to talk about the museum, the club station at the museum, and a special opportunity coming up soon for you to visit. And for a complete list, visit our website. For So for now, with Bob Olfin and uh, technical assistant Nick Bauer, this is Neil Rapp, WB9VPG, saying 7375, and may the good DX be yours.